Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Uh... Webster's Dictionary defines introduction as a thing preliminary to something else, especially at the beginning of a book, report, or speech. Yup. Yeah, I got nothing. So, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. Goodington's a good duck. Nothing about her is amiss. So let Hub attend her brooding with a dulcet synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin. And there's a Goodington update to follow in my conversation with Corey. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 20, May 1986. Past Imperfect. Oh, shit. A pun about conjugating verbs? Must be sweeps week. Written by Marv Wolfman. Drotted by Eduardo Barreto. Inkted by Romeo Tangal. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Adrienne Roy. And edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call. Wonder Girl. Robin. The Jason Todd one. Speedy. Hawk. The Flash who is now Wally West, and Aqualad. Hooray! Previously in the New Teen Titans. An indeterminate but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, the Titans tussled with a ruthless sexy assassin lady named Jade Nguyen, a.k.a. Cheshire. After murdering a rat old lady named Gert and kidnapping Jericho's mom, Cheshire made like her literary namesake and disappeared, revealing in a thought bubble as she did so that the father of her newborn child was a teen titan. In more recent titan news, Wonder Girl received a call from our hero's government liaison, King Faraday. The magnificently monikered FBI agent informed Donna that the titans were needed on an important mission. Unfortunately, Cyborg was recovering from surgery, Starfire was on a distant planet planning a revolution with her new space husband, Nightwing was sulking because Starfire had a new space husband, Beast Boy was searching for his stepdad, Raven had been kidnapped by an evil cult, Cole was dead, and Jericho was busy not appearing in that issue. Determined not to disappoint Faraday, Donna dug out her Rolodex and hastily assembled a new roster of Titans composed of former team members and Dick's replacement as Robin, Jason Todd. The new slash old team convened in the Titan Towers conference room and boldly, and only slightly inaccurately, proclaimed that the original Teen Titans were back. Gadzooks! Will Cheshire enlist the aid of Maury Povich to help her confront the Titan who fathered her child? Will the company of his old friends help Wally revert to his fun-loving, syrup-chugging ways? And why the fuck did Donna invite Hawk to join the team? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, no, she enlists the aid of a gang of masked international terrorists to help her confront the Titan who fathered her child, which is at best a lateral move, morally speaking. Sadly, no, and I have absolutely no idea. 
In the South African Bantu stand of KwaZulu, Robert Zembo is going about his daily business. Zembo is the head of an organization called the Black African League, which opposes the oppressive white minority rule of the apartheid government of South Africa. He has just sat down at his desk when Cheshire shows up and murders him. Shitty. The feline-themed femme fatale then plants a bunch of papers in the office, linking Zembo to Russian spies, and puts $9,700 in his pocket. Also shitty. Plus, that's a very specific amount of money. Hmm. Once she finishes up with her murder and fake evidence planting, Cheshire reports back to the guy who hired her for the job, a shitty white supremacist jerkhole named Mr. Horn. Horn is like, You remembered to put the $10,000 on Zembo after you murdered him, right? Excellent. Now we can say that the opposition to apartheid is being funded by communist Russia, and we can round up and torture anyone supporting black liberation in South Africa and call them a communist, and the United States and Great Britain will continue to support us. I mean, that's more or less what's happening anyway, so this mission wasn't strictly speaking all that necessary, but I'm evil and racist, so I just like doing evil racist stuff. You know what that's like, right, Cheshire? I mean... I know you're half Vietnamese, but I assume you're a white supremacist like me, or you wouldn't have taken this job. Cheshire is like, fuck you, you suck. You're just lucky I don't have a conscience and will do anything for money. Speaking of money, you accidentally gave me $10,300 to plant on the victim. So here's $300 back, you dumb, stupid, racist jerk. Then she jumps in her sports car and speeds away. Before she heads back to her hotel, the purportedly amoral assassin stops and makes a phone call to the police, informing them that a man named Horn is responsible for Zembo's murder and is himself in league with Russian spies. She then goes on to tell them that after the murder, Horn pocketed some of the money he planted on the victim, a fact which can be confirmed by the money's serial numbers. Which is a nice gesture, I guess, but she did still murder that guy. Also... It seems like she figures that the South African police will act on her information and arrest the wealthy white industrialist for murdering a black political dissident, which seems like a pretty wild assumption on her part and is uncharacteristically naive for an international assassin. Anyway, satisfied that she has mitigated her heinous crime enough that she can live with herself, Cheshire zooms back to her hotel. She is greeted by her mentor-slash-butler or whatever, Wen Chang, who despite what the extraneous apostrophe in his name would imply, does not appear to be from space. Chang is the elderly Chinese man who raised Cheshire and taught her how to be an assassin. He's cavorting with and hitting on two young, scantily clad black women. Cheshire is like, hey, we have to go to Switzerland so I can find my kid's dad. Also, can you stop being a creepy fucking perv for like a minute, please? Chang is like, Nope. Sorry, Jade. The extra apostrophe is for extra pervy. Also, be careful, because when you talk about your mysterious baby daddy, you get kind of emotional. Cheshire is like, first of all, shut up. And B, when I'm wearing my special green outfit, you have to call me Cheshire. Fair enough. Back at the Titan Tower, Don is briefing the new slash old teen Titans on their upcoming mission. Turns out, Soviet and U.S. ambassadors are about to have a secret meeting in Switzerland. There have been rumors that Cheshire might try to disrupt the negotiations in some way, 
and since the Titans have dealt with her in the past, Agent Faraday reckoned that they ought to act as security. Hawk is like, I'm in, only instead of providing security, can we just go there and murder all the Russians? I fucking hate communists. Also, I just whittled a gun out of this block of wood. Ah! Wally is like, I also hate communists, but I'm pretty sure we're not allowed to murder them all. I'm in too, though. Also, I'm the Flash now. Speedy is like, yeah, we know Wally. I'm in too, but I'm uncharacteristically hesitant about taking this mission for reasons I refuse to divulge. Robin is like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I'm a Teen Titan now. Do they have ice cream in Switzerland? Batman never lets me have ice cream. Wee! Aqualad is like, whatever. My girlfriend Tula died during Crisis on Infinite Earths, and now I don't care about anything. I guess Switzerland is as good a place to be apathetic as anywhere else. Hooray! The new old Teen Titans are going to Switzerland! Everybody piles into the Titans' T-Jet. Donna drives, and Jason must have called Shotgun because he gets to sit up front with her. After they take off, Donna turns to him and is like, I'm kind of freaking out, Robin. I, I feel like I've been a pretty shitty team leader. What do you think I should do next? Jason replies, I'm flattered that you're talking to me like a peer, Wonder Girl. Everybody always treats me like a kid, because I'm a kid. As to what you should do next, I'd maybe start by pulling up on the steering wheel so that we don't crash into the Twin Towers like we're about to. Thankfully, Donna follows Jason's advice, and a few hours later, the gang lands in Zermatt, Switzerland. Once they land, Wally scouts out the town, and Speedy shows off a fancy new surveillance arrow that he has. Jason starts getting chilly on account of his outfit is mostly a set of underoos and a cape, so they all head to the plushly appointed chalet the government has provided to them so that they can warm up by the fire. Once they settle in, Hawk yells a bunch of shit and generally acts like an out-of-control jerk, and everyone else sits around and talks about what an out-of-control jerk Hawk is. Aww, just like old times. Aqualad is thinking about how much he doesn't care about anything when his sea-strengthened ears hear some people moving around outside. Wally heads out to investigate, and finds Cheshire and a bunch of what appear to be heavily armed ski instructors planting some bombs. The junior wizard... No, wait, now that Barry's dead, he's not Kid Flash anymore. The all-growed-up regular wizard of Wiz takes out all of the hench people in, well, in a flash. But Cheshire shoots him with a fancy computer gun. By which I mean the gun has a computerized aiming system, not that it shoots computers. That would be silly. It shoots fancy bullets that lock onto their targets and can go around corners at super speed. One of these fancy bullets hits Wally in the shoulder. He hates that. The rest of the gang heads outside to lend a hand. It's a good thing they did, because as soon as they get outside, a bomb Cheshire had planted goes off and blows up their chalet. Robin and Donna team up to tackle Cheshire, who thinks to herself, who the fuck are these assholes? I thought I was going to fight the new Teen Titans. This might screw up my elaborate scheme. Just as Wonder Girl is about to use her magic lasso to tie up Cheshire, she sees that Hawk is pointing a gun at the head of a henchman he has just beaten the shit out of and looks like he is about to pull the trigger. Enraged, the Amazon turns her attention from the assassin she is all but subdued and starts beating the shit out of Hawk and asking him what the fuck is wrong with him. Fair question. Also... Hooray! Hawk is like, My brother Dove thought killing people was bad, but now he's dead, so I thought I might try killing people. It seems fun. That argument doesn't sound all that persuasive to me, but 
it seems like it might have swayed Donna, because after hearing it, she keeps beating up on Hawk and is about to kill him. Robin intervenes and is like, What the fuck, Donna? Sure, we'd all like to kill Hank, but it says in the Teen Titans rulebook, no murder. And then right under that it says, not even if it's Hawk. And that part is underlined twice. Donna's like, fine, whatever. I'm going home, Robin. You're in charge. Jason is stunned. He's like, are you serious? I'm like 12. You keep treating me like I'm dick just because I'm wearing his hand-me-down underpants. But I'm just a kid. When she hears this, Wonder Girl kind of snaps out of it and goes, Oh, shit. I I'm sorry. My bad. You're totally right, replacement dick. I'll try to be better about that. I'll be in charge again. Jason's like, Oh, okay, good, but please stop calling me replacement dick. It's disturbing on a number of levels. While Wonder Girl and Replacement Dick are having this heart-to-heart, -heart, Cheshire goes up to Wally, who's pretty seriously injured, and tells him that once the rest of the team is conscious and together, he should tell them that she said, Cheshire remembers. And also, she's going to kill the ambassadors tomorrow. Then she kicks Wally in the face, and he passes out. Later that evening, after the team has moved into a different, less exploded chalet, oh, uh, I'm sorry, I read on Twitter that I use the word less when I mean fewer sometimes, so later that night, after the team has moved into a fewer exploded chalet, Flash fills the gang in on what Cheshire told him. Hawk is like, well, I don't know what that means, but I'd like to be clear about the fact that I didn't learn any lessons from what happened this afternoon, and I'd still like to murder some people. Donna is like, noted. Now shut the fuck up, and if you don't not kill people, I'll break your hands. Hooray! The next day, Speedy, Aqualad, Robin, Hawk, and Wonder Girl take a gondola to the mountaintop where the meeting is to take place. To be clear, it's the elevated cable car kind of gondola, not the Venetian boat kind of gondola. I mean, where would they even find a pole that long? Wally's shoulder is still bugging him, so he stays home. A secluded mountain peak seems like an odd place to practice international diplomacy, but... My guess is that someone on the planning committee enjoyed wordplay and decided that the summit should be at a summit. I can respect that. When their non-boat gondola reaches its destination, Faraday greets them and tells them that the diplomats got there a little while ago. Hawk tries to sass Faraday, but the veteran FBI agent treats him like he is the most useless person in the world, which isn't entirely fair, seeing as world's worst district attorney Adrian Chase is still out there somewhere, but he isn't too far off the mark. The gang settles in and starts standing guard. Robin mentions to Speedy that he's noticed the post-adolescent Archer has been acting a little weird whenever Cheshire's name is mentioned. But before the befuddled Bowman has much of a chance to respond, Cheshire and her ski-wear-clad terrorists show up and attack. Turns out the determined do-batter and her minions had some jetpacks that they hooked onto the gondola's line so that they could be used as a makeshift uphill zipline. Pretty clever. The high-flying hitwoman KOs replacement dick in about a second then turns her attention to Speedy. She reveals that a little while ago, while Roy was doing some undercover work for the government, the two of them had boned down. After his mission was finished, the incognito amorous arrow flinger abandoned his poison-prone paramour. She was pretty peeved when she found out her lover was a government agent, and even more upset when she learned he was a supposed superhero. When she realized she was pregnant, she became determined to track down Speedy, although she wasn't sure what she would do when she found him. But now that Cheshire is face-to-face -face with him, her mind is made up. She takes out a fancy-ass gun and announces her intention to kill Speedy. 
Yeah, Roy has that effect on people. To be continued. And joining me once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going just fine. How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. I was telling you just before we started recording, Goodington's ducklings just hatched, which is very exciting. And apropos, as it is Mother's Day, so I'm doing pretty good. That's awesome. That's a rare thing, I imagine, to have ducklings in a city yard. Yes, yes, I always knew that one day my years of neglecting my side lawn would pay dividends, and it has done so. She appears to be quite happy living behind the rake that my neighbors lost, and uh, it's pretty great. So, when you say your neighbors lost this rake, is it leaning against your fence on your side? So, the side yard is actually set up. There's no fence between us for that one section, which is why that part of the lawn I've just kind of been neglecting because it's kind of like a liminal space where it is on our property but it's right next to where they're always hanging out and playing okay so they didn't just they're not like throwing yard equipment over the fence at you no that's good yeah either way I mean hey free yard equipment if they were Mm, I suppose well congratulations I'm pleased to hear you have uh ducklings in your liminal space now well thank you I'm pleased as punch about the whole thing myself. Couldn't be happier to have a bird living on my property, which uh, I think tells you the the degree that the self-quarantining is maybe getting to. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you gotta if you gotta pick a bird, I think a duck is a, a fine way to go. I've I never had any trouble with ducks. Yeah, they seem pretty okay for the most part. Mm-hmm. Creepy penises, but other than that, not bad. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you ready to talk about a comic book? Indeed. All right, Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Oh, man, it was a little bit all over the place. When it first started out, I was cautiously optimistic that it was going to uh, tackle racism without then apologizing for doing so, like we usually see. Mm Mm-hmm. But... It was more so that apartheid South Africa was just the kind of opening setting for getting the story going. But it did pull me in. I thought it was a a pretty good story overall. Not a ton happened, but I'm definitely, it it left me like with a little bit of that cliffhanger thing done pretty well, where I do want to find out what happens next. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It also, it caught me by surprise because I had all but forgotten about the dangling Cheshire threadline of one of the Titans being the father of her child. Mm -hmm. That was something that came up back in Tales of the Teen Titans number 52, and we haven't seen Cheshire since then. So in terms of the time when those issues came out, that was about a year before this issue came out, which is kind of within the wheelhouse of when you would expect maybe a story to get picked up. But There have been like two years of stories in between those two events because there's that year of overlap of the Teen Titans Volume 2 putting out new stories while Tales of the Teen Titans was putting out new stories. So I was honestly a little bit thrown by that. Mm. Did we call it in the past that, uh, of course, it was Speedy who was going to be her baby daddy? I can't remember. 
I can't remember, so I'm just going to go ahead and assume that we did. That's that's fair. I think we should. It, I, I think it's safest for us to assume that we were correct in the past. Oh, yeah. Of course. So, yeah, basically the story breaks down into two parts. You get the setup like you talked about with the South African intrigue of politics and assassination against the backdrop of apartheid. And then it moves into the main story, which is the new Teen Titans slash old Teen Titans team that Donna has assembled does a bad job. And then Cheshire revealing that Roy is her father's baby and the cliffhanger of whether or not she's going to murder him. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the establishing bit and then maybe just go through and talk about each of the team members that are there individually and how we felt about their various character arcs. Because they each seem to have a different thing going on, which is kind of nice. What did you think of the opening South African apartheid political intrigue business? Yeah, so the first few panels, I mean, they lay it out in no uncertain terms that this is a a fucked up system and it's bad. And then Cheshire's like painted to be, you know, evil because she's complicit in exploiting some of the badness of that situation. And then she's like, well, actually, I'm taking the money to do this evil thing, but I don't really agree with it. And then it turns out that she's actually doing something counter to the evil mission of uh, assassinating this member of the black political party i forget the name that they made up for it yeah they called it the uh, let's see the black african league and it's pretty obviously supposed to be a stand-in for the african national congress yep so she ostensibly has been hired to topple the anc stand-in but it turns out that she has has some counter thing set up to for whatever reason that is never made clear to frame the guy that actually hired her to do that bullshit in the first place. And so it felt to me like a pretty ineffective way to say that like, oh, she's evil, but she's not that evil because the ends justify the means. And then it just sort of leaves it. Yeah. And she did still assassinate the guy. She then implicated the guy who hired her to do the assassination so I, th- I thought it did an okay job of what it was trying to do, but it was weird that it specifically tried to set it up that, oh, she is really a bad assassin lady who will work for anybody if the price is right. And she says, oh, Deathstroke went off the rails when he started giving a shit about people, so I'm never going to do that. But then has its cake and eats it too with her then showing that she does have a conscience in some way. Yeah, that part didn't really work for me. I don't know. It's weird to see that as the backdrop, though, just because it's hard to remember that that was actually kind of a politically divisive thing to do in the 80s. To say that 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 apartheid is bad? Kind of, yeah. I mean, not necessarily to say apartheid was bad. I think by that point, publicly at least, most of the United States would agree with that statement, but saying that somebody should do anything about it. At that time, Reagan had just, I believe, vetoed economic sanctions against South Africa. Uh, His veto got overruled by Congress. But Thatcher was definite, and Reagan were both very much opposed to the uh, African National Congress and viewed them as a terrorist communist organization, which this comic book does hint at. And saying that they were in league with communists was part of what the person who hired Cheshire was trying to establish. 
And so it is weird to even consider that that was a political stance at the time. Yeah, and that was kind of what I was getting at. Um, and the first thing that I said was, so in the past when, you know, there's been black characters that were angry at racism, they, they've been made to be like, oh, that guy actually shouldn't be angry about it. But this one, there was a, yeah, a bit of a swipe taken at the U.S. and British policy where they said, yeah, it's bad that the guy got assassinated, but, you know, all the other first world nations will send a complaint like they normally do, and then it will be business as usual. And that was shockingly political for me to see in, in this book. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it is also always a little bit easier to point out acts of injustice that are happening somewhere else, but that there is even a nod to the fact that they are a U.S. ally and the U.S. is not doing shit about it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, a couple pages later, it's <laughs> then they're like, oh, now we have an opportunity to, to draw sexy ladies in animal print fabrics that Jade's creepy mentor is hitting on. Slapping on the butt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, how many racial signifiers can we put in one panel? Let's see. <laughs> one, two. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there, there was that. I was like, oh, you guys were trying so hard. And then you, you went and screwed <laughs> it up like two pages later. Yep. All right, well, you want to talk some about the various players in the cast of this new old Teen Titans group? Sure. All right, let's start with the new Robin, Jason Todd. What did you think of his deal? Oh, man, this is probably my favorite Jason Todd to date that I've encountered either in um, comics or other media. Yeah, me too. I have never really liked Jason Todd, but reading this also made me realize I haven't read that many of the stories that he was in when he was Robin. And I wonder if my backlash against the character was just part of picking up on this general fandom dissatisfaction that came at the time of there being a new Robin that wasn't Dick Grayson. Because this kid seems actually pretty chill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does. And it's remarkable, like the difference in the way that he's portrayed here, which is essentially somebody who's relatively innocent and kind of wide eyed and optimistic about superheroing to like the more modern depiction of him, like from the Titans TV series, where he's kind of a sociopath. who's It's an excuse for him to, you know, hurt people. So I think where a lot of that idea came from was later depictions of the character. Because his whole thing and the thing that he is most known for is he gets killed by the Joker a few years from when this story comes out. And then later he came back as a violent sociopathic vigilante who felt that he was abandoned by Batman and was just angry all the time. And I think the combination of that later viewing of him and the fact that there was an initial backlash against him for not being Dick Grayson may have just kind of conflated everything in my mind that, oh, he was always kind of a snotty, wisecracking kid. Mm -hmm. I think initially there was an attempt to portray him with like a little bit more attitude than originally Robin had had, just because it was the 80s. And I know that when Batman first encountered him, he was like a street tough who was trying to steal the hubcaps off the Batmobile. But that actually sounds pretty awesome. And I like this kid that he is portrayed as in here. So I think I'm just going to have to read some more old Jason Todd as Robin stories because uh, 
yeah, I like this kid. Yeah, there's a panel, I think it's on page eight, where it's like the first time he's been in the Titans Tower, and he's saying, I can't believe Batman is letting me go with you guys. This is the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me. And he's drawn, like, he looks so excited, even with the little domino mask on. His eyes are, like, popping out of his head. It's pretty cute. Yeah, he seems mostly in this, at first, just really stoked to be allowed to sit at the big kids' table. He also is portrayed as being much younger than the rest of the gang. I would say he's probably supposed to be about 14, maybe 15, but he's written as being significantly younger than Gar is being written as. And Gar is, I believe, supposed to be 16. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I was amused by about his depiction in this book is he, on a couple of different occasions, makes reference to the fact that he doesn't really want to be running around in his underpants and doesn't like his costume, especially when it's so cold. And I think he says something along the lines of, man, whoever designed this costume with short shorts must have been a sadist. Yeah, I took note of that also. It's like, yeah, whoever that was. <laughs> like, I mean, I know you're not the world's greatest detective, but you are being trained by him. I think you can figure out who's behind that outfit. It's one of two people. It's either Batman, in which case, yeah, maybe he is a sadist best case scenario. Or he's a masochist, and it was Dick that designed the outfit. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he's also surprisingly insightful. There's the whole thing where he recognizes that Roy is lying and is hiding things from the rest of the group. And he also stands up to Donna and is just like, Hey, you keep treating me like I'm Dick. I'm not Dick. Knock it off. I'm just a kid. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of refreshing, although it was also a little bit jarring the extent to which Donna clearly was treating him like he was Dick Grayson. Yeah, I felt so bad for him, especially the scene where everything kind of begins to fall apart when they're up in the Swiss Alps and Cheshire is blowing things up and everybody's injured and Donna essentially says, you know what, fuck it, you're in charge, and walks off. <laughs> He's like, dude, I'm 13. <laughs> what the hell am I supposed to do? <laughs> Can you imagine how, like, I don't know why, but, like, I internalized his stress in that situation of just, oh, my God, if I had been left in charge of a situation once everything went sideways, that would be the worst. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, just because I don't want to sit at the kids' table anymore doesn't mean I'm ready to start carving the turkey, Mr. West. <laughs> I know. Where's grown-up Flash when you need him? Ugh. We'll get to him in a minute. <laughs> yeah, it did honestly make me wonder the way Donna was treating him it would be consistent with some of the other things we've seen about the DC universe if just everyone there has prosopagnosia. Has. Uh, has. What? I, I was uh, stammering because I was trying to parse out that word. Yeah, me too. I'm probably mispronouncing it. What I have written down is prosopagnosia, which is a neurological condition in which you cannot recognize people's faces. And... That would actually make so much sense if she's just like, oh, you're wearing his clothes. That means you're him. Oh, wow. It would explain why they're so bad about secret identities. It would explain why some characters have masks, some characters don't, and it's still considered a secret identity. Like, it kind of makes everything make so much more sense. Do you think being bad with names is like a mild version of that? I think it's probably a different one. Oh. Somebody once told me that that, is, that was 
a choice that people make is to say like, oh, I'm bad with names as a way to just not put the effort in of trying. And so I gave that some thought and I tried really hard for a couple of weeks and I still sucked at it. So I, I don't know how much weight I put in that argument. Yeah, I think that's probably a case by case basis thing. I think for some people that probably is true, but for other people it is just you have difficulty remembering names. Let's talk about Speedy. What did you think about Roy Harper in this? Well, at first read, I appreciated how inward-facing, if not taciturn, he was, rather than being, you know, more of his uh, bombastic self that we're accustomed to. Right. Well, I think for one thing, there's just not space for that on this team, because Hank is taking up all the air in that capacity. Oh my gosh, yep. But... Yeah, I was like, oh, this is kind of a nice side of him. Maybe he's grown. He's a little bit more introspective. But then as it goes on, it's like, oh, you're just hoping nobody pays attention to you because you slept with the assassin that you're trying to catch and you don't want to tell anybody. You know, it's I don't know what I would do if I was in that situation, but sitting on the outside, it's very easy for me to judge and just be like, dude. (laughs) That information might have been relevant before the whole team got blown up. You might think. I I mean, or just, you know, you could sit this one out. I know he says he doesn't want to because he wants to be helpful. But if you're withholding that information, that is not helpful. Yeah, I'm going to have to recuse myself on account of being a baby daddy. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody's, what? (laughs) It's what he should have done. I don't think he knows he's a father. I really hope he doesn't know that he's a father at this point. Did you get the impression that he was aware? No, I didn't. But I did get the impression that this being the Speedy that we've known all along had considered that that might be a possibility and did everything in his power not to find out. Ah, that actually makes some sense. Yeah. And there is at least one nod to the old Roy showing up in this issue. And that was when, after Flash has already cased the entire town and made sure that there's nobody there, he says... Oh, you didn't need to do that. I can just check things out on my fancy satellite arrow. And he launches an arrow into the sky after it's been established that he doesn't need to do this anymore. At this point, he is just showing off. And he's also showing that it monitors the town on his belt buckle. So presumably, he is just inviting everybody to gather around him and stare at his crotch while he does archery. Yep, there's that. I also had the observation that this is taking uh, navel gazing to a whole new level so maybe his introspection is is over the top (laughs) yeah i mean maybe if he was the one looking at it but i'm pretty sure he was just like gather around everybody stare at speedy's crotch because i'm gonna fire some arrows it's a dumb place to put a display it really is the only reason to put it there is to draw people's attention to it because like if you're like looking first of all you look like a dummy i'm doing it right now just testing <laughs> like trying to look at your own belt buckle yeah it would be upside down and you'd just mm-hmm. would look foolish and eventually you'd, you'd hurt your neck yeah not great for surveillance one wouldn't think the small screen always wins you know in the battle for attention and that's a pretty small screen so and also i mean it's gonna be difficult for him to see it especially in the winter months because i'm assuming that he has that like novelty thing of mistletoe that you put above your belt buckle and that'll get in the way of his vision 
So just really impractical on Speedy's part all the way around. Yep. Cool technology, but uh, terrible implementation and bad timing. Yeah. All right, let's talk about Hank. <sighs> okay. So I get that if your brother gets killed, it's going to mess you up. Right. That said, they took everything that I... And thank, thank you for saying that. Oh, you're welcome. I d- didn't want you to, <laughs> before I jump into how much I hate this guy, I didn't want you to feel bad. So, I mean, they do set the stage like, yeah, he's he's basically lost it because of uh, Dove's murder. But then they proceed to just take everything that I didn't like about the character in the first place and turn it up to 11. And it doesn't seem like that would necessarily be his reaction to it. I mean, the fact that this is the point where he goes, I don't know, how many rats mad do you want to say he is right now? I'm going to say at least two or three, right? Oh, yeah, he's up to four or five rats mad. He's like full fresh maker all the time. But the fact that his brother dying is what predicates that would certainly imply that Dove was the one keeping him from being less angry all of the time. And from what we've seen of Dove, I don't think that was the case. (laughs) Yes, Dove believed in pacifism, but I don't think if you are a warlike person, having a whiny, preachy dude around telling you all the time, everything you're doing is wrong, is going to calm you down as much as this seems to indicate. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, and I think it's Donna does actually say, "Hey, without your brother to chill you out, you you're being too rough." And I would think not having that annoyance would chill him out. Yeah, I mean, certainly the idea of Dove being a calming influence on Hawk would be one way you could have portrayed that character, but that was never established. He was always furious at Dove, and for the most part, for good reason. And also, I mean, it's the it brings to memory the serious flaws in Dove's pacifism where he's just like, stop hitting this guy that I'm holding for you. <laughs> yeah. He also, like, I mean, the way that he is blaming Dove's pacifism for his death doesn't make any sense. He's like, my brother was a pacifist and where did that get him? He's dead now. It wasn't like he died in a sit-in. He didn't die in an act of nonviolent protest. I think if he had had a gun on him, the anti-monitor still would have blown him up. Yep. So one more thing that I didn't like about Hawk was his uh, contribution to a very an unsafe workplace with his angry slash threatening whittling. <laughs> He was constantly whittling. He has this giant knife and this piece of wood, and he's talking at people while, like, whittling at them in a very menacing way. I was like, oh, man, this if the Titans had HR, this guy would be getting right ups left and right. Oh, for so many things. I gotta say, I do love the fact that apparently one of his powers we were unaware of was super whittling, because he does turn a block of wood into a fairly realistic wooden gun in, like, the space of four panels. And then he starts whittling something else later. Is this like a therapeutic thing that he was his character was going through at the time? I'm honestly wondering because I haven't read any Hawk and Dove comics that were coming out in that era, and I'm not sure if there even were any, but it would maybe make sense if like he had to see a therapist and they're like, okay, we're going to try, maybe you can whittle or something. You need a hobby, something you can focus on. And then he immediately just starts whittling guns all the time. 
Yeah. This therapist kind of shrugs. It's, like, eh. <laughs> it's a step in the right direction. You just do your thing, Hawk. But overall, he is just completely out of control. And it kind of makes you wonder why Donna would invite him to be on the team. And she says, oh, well, you know, we need him. I'm like, do ya? What contribution is he making at this point? Yeah, no, he screwed things up for them because she spent the time she should have been fighting, pinning him against a post to keep him from killing other people. Yeah, and he also did the same thing. Like, he took Robin out of the equation at one point after Robin had to save him from getting killed, too. Yeah, it was a bad first outing. Yeah, it really was. Let's talk about Aqualad. Yeah, so great to see uh, the water boy again. Uh-huh, I did like that he gets called water boy. I thought that was pretty fun on Hawk's part. Maybe the best thing he did. I would consider that a step up from Gilhead. Yeah, I think the way that Hawk says it, he means it more of like, uh, you're not really on the team. You're standing by the sidelines and helping the actual players. Yeah. It's like probably some kind of sports metaphor. <laughs> the other thing, though, that I thought was interesting about that exchange is Aqualad, first of all, is, his head is not in the game, clearly, because he's still so grief-ridden about, about Tula. Mm -hmm. But he does try and talk some sense into Hawk by saying that there's rules against needless killing. And Hawk, the one time he makes a good point, says, well, we need to define what's what's needless and what's not. And I thought that that was interesting because there has been a turn recently in the last few books where, you know, there's actually depictions of people getting killed. And um, that's something that was always shied away from. But they haven't really done a great job exploring when is that okay, when is that not okay. Yeah, I feel like that is actually a pretty common theme for 80s comic books to explore. I remember that coming up in a West Coast Avengers book that came out around this time, and a few others, because in the 80s there were more vigilante-type heroes who were okay with killing, and that had been the case for a while in comics. You started seeing more of that in the Bronze Age, but by the mid-80s it was more accepted, and they were more... I think, likely to be working hand-in-hand hand with more traditional we-should-never-kill-guys. And this issue brings that up, but it brings it up, like you said, in the, well, we need to define what needless is. And it also has Donna saying later something about, like, we can't have you going around intentionally killing people. And I'm like, you're throwing a lot of modifiers around here. It is leading me to believe that you guys do a significant amount of murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, she probably feels bad about all the cats. Gosh, no kidding. Those were not intentional animal murders. <laughs> I was possessed, or was being mind-controlled by a Greek god, or was being mind-controlled by somebody else, or was just having a really bad day. Not intentional. End of story, Hawk. Yeah, it was kind of jarring to see Aqualad be as overwrought as he was, and not even overwrought, not even upset-seeming, but it's like he's got sea-strengthened nihilism now. He just does not give a shit, and talks about the importance of... He's like, yeah, I know I gotta just keep going through the motions, but I just don't give a fuck about anything right now. And... I felt really bad about that, but I was also, like, kind of impressed that Aqualad 
recognized what he was going through and also recognized the importance of faking it till you make it. Yeah. I felt like that was a more powerful illustration of trauma and, and loss than Hawk's violence, you know? Seeing this character that we're used to seeing as somebody, Aqualad, who is happy-go-lucky and joyous, just, yeah, not giving a shit. He's totally just empty, hollowed out. It was sad. Yeah, it was really sad to see that. I also, at a couple of points, wondered if maybe it was his birthday, too. Because we do see that he is sullenly nursing a cup of coffee at one point as he is being morose. And I was like, oh, shit. Did he learn how to celebrate birthdays from Dick Grayson? Oh. Like, maybe they don't have birthdays in Atlantis. Sad coffee. Because you see him doing that. And then later on in one of my favorite panels, I think it's on page 13, you see Donna and Hank are drinking cups of coffee and there is Aqualad having a quick head turn as he looks at them like, the fuck are you doing drinking coffee? It's not your birthday. <laughs> Where the fuck did you get that? Fuck, was I supposed to get you over? Is it your birthday too? Oh, uh, man. Did you see that panel? Yeah, I, I found the one that you're talking about where Aqualad looks like he's swinging his head around. There's a little like motion lines next to it and his brow brows are furrowed. Yeah, and he's frowning at them and staring at Donna's coffee cup. What the hell, you guys? What did you think about Wally West in this issue? Well, I guess I'll start by saying I'm glad that his speed disease is in remission. Sure. I don't know. He talks a lot about honoring Flash that died in Crisis, but other than that, just seems to be pretty morose and really not being the deus ex machina that I'm used to him being. Yeah, I mean... My heart goes out to the guy because he talks about how upsetting it is that he can only move at the speed of sound. I can't imagine being that slow. That poor guy. Yeah, it's a real downgrade for old uh, Flasher. He also is judgmental in a way that I think is consistent with his character, but distressing nonetheless of how Aqualad is dealing with his grief and seems to be saying like, well, no, there's a one-size-fits-all solution to this. He needs to devote his entire life and every ounce of his being into living up to the legacy of the person that he lost and honoring them, like the way he is doing with Barry. And I think it's Speedy even, like, is thinking to himself, like, yeah, dude, you don't seem like you're doing so well with this. What you're doing is unhealthy. And I think whether or not what he's doing is unhealthy, him prescribing that as an action for others and saying that, yeah, there's this one-size-fits-all approach to grief is shitty, but also, what does he want Aqualad to do? Does he want Aqualad to change his name to Tula or start calling himself Aquagirl? I was also frustrated by that comparison or that advice. Boo. And yeah, honestly, he really doesn't seem like he's dealing with things great either. It was weird to see Hawk call him a liberal because we have seen before that he is a Reagan Republican and considers himself conservative and hates communist with a passion that borders on mania. So, I mean, that does kind of put Hawk's character into perspective mm -hmm. that he considers Wally a liberal. Yeah, it really does. Because he doesn't want to kill all of the communists. 
which is what Wally, I think, does specifically say. Uh, he's like, look, I hate Russians too, but I don't think we should all die. And Hawk's just like, Liberals. Yeah. You fucking bleeding hearts with your, oh, we all shouldn't die in a nuclear Armageddon. <sighs> yeah. No, this was very mid-late 80s Red Scare stuff. Yeah. Also, specifically, the domino theory that was the U.S.'s approach to international diplomacy for so long, which was if one nation goes communist, then all the other nations around it will go communist, too, is the explicit reason for their involvement in this, attending this international summit, mm -hmm. that if it goes badly, then that means more countries will turn communist, and then if those countries turn communist, then more countries will. Yeah, it brought back some... Uh, some memories of shit that I didn't really understand then because I was a kid and I don't understand now because it was stupid. Yep. Yep. And I, I think we'll probably dive into this a little bit more when we get to the um, timestamp. Indeed. I think the only Titan left on our list to discuss is Donna. What'd you think of Donna? Oh, man. I understand the stress that she's under but overall uh bad job yeah no i agree she is doing a bad job and i think most of it seems to be born out of a crisis of confidence mm -hmm. that she is having right now uh she is not believing in herself and is scared to take any kind of decisive action and that is showing there is a later acknowledgement of it and she does it a couple of times in the issue like when she almost crashes their plane into the Twin Towers, which, ouch, talk about your timestamps. Yeah, that was so weird to read that. Yeah. But after that, she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll get my head together. And then she doesn't get her head together. So later on in the issue, when after she almost kills Hawk and Jason tells her, hey, I'm not Dick Grayson, then she's like, I'm sorry, I'll get my shit together you don't really have a lot of confidence in her that she will. Mm -hmm. And I understand that it seems like part of the point of this team that is being assembled is that they are all dealing with some shit right now. And I appreciate the character development that is going into that and that we're finding out some about each of them. But I'm not crazy about this choice for Donna, especially as... This is, I believe, the first time that she is acknowledged as a team leader. It is the first time that we have a woman leading the Teen Titans. And to show her as not equal to the task, I think is kind of shitty. It reminds me of when Mal was on the team and his constant story arc was him not feeling that he was quite good enough to be on the team. And then he would prove it to himself, but then the next issue, he would feel that he was not good enough to be part of the team. And that just kept getting repeated over and over again for him. I'm worried about that with Donna, and it's not a great look, frankly. Yeah, I agree. My sincere hope is that the crucible of uh, whatever happens next, will she'll come out of that as a strong leader, and we won't have to deal with this back and forth thing, but... The way they laid it out, I'm not confident <laughs> that's going to be the arc. I'm not either, and it's weird because previously that is inconsistent with the way the character's been portrayed. 
Like, she has always been very strong and confident and has believed in herself. So to then have her thrust into this position in the comic book feels a little bit off to me. Yep, I agree. Well, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we got into the minutiae? Nope. Well, Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yes, Rick, thank you. All right, what do you feel like hitting up first, Corey? Oh, well, I guess since we were just talking about it a minute ago, let's talk about uh, uh, timestamps. Okay, what timestamp did you find in this issue? So you had mentioned the the domino theory, and this put me smack in the middle of the 80s where, you know, if you don't combat communism, next thing you know, the Cubans are parachuting into Colorado and red donning the whole situation. Yep. There was that, which was a a theme throughout. And then also um, the apartheid thing that we mentioned where there was, I think at this time, the, yeah, the thing with Reagan and then... uh, house trying to pass a bill anti-apartheid bill and that for some reason being a struggle so those were the two things i noted those as well just the general theme of the geopolitics and yeah i i remember being a kid and having my fourth grade teacher tell us that if nicaragua went communist then they were gonna sneak up over the border at night and kill us all and thinking like well i mean they'd have pretty far to go and we live in new hampshire so it'd take them a while to get there i don't know about that and he later got fired for throwing a desk at a kid oh classic new england (laughs) indeed but in addition to that yes you have donna almost crashing a plane into the twin towers it was just kind of shocking to see that it was eerie you know it's like the uh, seeing it this out of context as a what if was Kind of jarring. Yeah, absolutely. And the U.S. consciousness about the apartheid, I think, peaked around then in the 80s, or certainly was in the forefront in a way that it hadn't been. I think this is like about two years after the specials did the song uh, Free Nelson Mandela, which, I mean, actually, it did have a huge effect on the U.S. and England's awareness of the apartheid situation. And so I I think, yeah, having that be the backdrop for the opening of the story was certainly a a timestamp. And just, yeah, the general Cold War tone of the book, uh, I think. This is a very 80s story, a very mid-80s story, it seems like. Who did you have as your president of the drama club? Who acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion in this issue? Boy, there was a lot of drama to go around. There was one panel in particular, I think maybe page six. It's where Donna is addressing the new old Titans about why they've been gathered. And she is leaning over the desk and slamming her hand down on the desk with with one arm and then like making a like pulling in towards yourself, clenching your hand with the other arm saying, this is why I've called you. And in the previous panel, she's like making a fist and looking super intense, saying, unfortunately, the new Teen Titans has, well, it seems we've gone the way of all flesh, which also is a weird thing to say, but she looks pretty overly intense when she's saying that. That's why uh, she got my vote for president of the drama club. 
I think that's a fair choice. Yeah, I know the scene you're talking about, and that is a weird turn of phrase. It seems we've gone the way of all flesh. We're breaking up. Like, wait, what? I Yeah, sagging as gravity takes its toll. Like, I, what does that mean? It is also odd because you see her. She does look so intense and determined on that page. And then at very little resistance on the next page, you see that she is looking very uncertain and is like, toying with her hair in a way that would kind of indicate stress and indecision. Oh, I, I took that to mean she was counting off on her fingers the reasons why that they should do the protection detail for the summit. Oh, I guess that makes sense also. I guess you could read that either way. Coupled with her later behavior, I viewed that as a sign of indecisiveness. But yeah, you're right. I decided to go with, and there was certainly some contention for this, because there is the scene where Donna is just beating the shit out of Hank and crying as she hits him. Mm. But I don't think that's her being dramatic. I think that's her being emotional. And I think there's a difference. I decided to go with Hank because when he wants to make a point, he takes the time to whittle himself a prop. And then point it. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, oh, I don't have any toy guns with me. Okay. I'll say... You've got yourself a bleeding heart. Anyone who gets in our way, bang. Okay, that'll be a really nice turn of phrase. And I want to hold something cool when I'm doing it. So yeah, I'll whittle myself a stage prop so that I can say something dramatic. I think that's what puts him over the top. The other person who I actually almost had was Cheshire. Just because when she confronts her mentor slash butler slash father figure he calls her jade instead of her character's name cheshire and she gets very upset and she says i cannot afford weakness i have to be strong and then as she says that she just scratches her fingernails across the wall for no reason other than to make a point that's pretty dramatic not as dramatic as whittling yourself a stage prop though so i had to go with hank on this one that's a fair call Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you feel were most worthy of note? Oh, man. These almost belong in the timestamp category. Uh, Mr. Horn is the evil South African guy that that hires Cheshire, and he's got classic bad guy set up. Uh, White suit, white fedora, cane with the gold bird on top. Oh, absolutely. It was so very Nazi bad guy archaeologist from... uh... Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I called him uh, Nazi wearing a Nazi suit. Yep, classic. But my favorite was a guy that I called Evil Han Solo in a beanie, and he's one of Cheshire's henchmen in the Alps fight scene. I think page page fourteen or so. Was he the one with the pom pom on his head? Because I called him pom pom hat terrorist. Yeah, but if you look at the the coloration's a little bit off. But in that scene where they're all fighting, he really has Han Solo's uniform he's got the jacket he's got the pants with a stripe and the high the riding boots oh and he's got the vest yeah and his gun looks kind of solo-ish well there's no vest but it's implied that was that was my reading of it yeah i can see that i called him pom-pom hat terrorist because yes all of the elements of that outfit that you talked about are pretty great but the fact that he's a terrorist whose hat has a silly little pom-pom on the top of it really, really amused me. I feel like once you are an international terrorist, you need to wear a ski mask 
or not have a pom-pom on your hat. Mm -hmm. And apparently the art team made that decision on the next page, too, because his (laughs) pom-pom is gone and he's got a ski mask on. (laughs) I thought that was a different guy. Oh, maybe maybe they've all got those riding boots. I think so. That's probably like a team present, you know? Ah. I actually, like, that made me look up, hey, why do ski hats have those little pom-poms? And apparently it was a holdover from old sailor outfits where they would have them on in case they bumped their head during rocky seas. It wouldn't hurt as much. So I thought that was kind of fun to know. Really? Yeah. That's so cute. Isn't it? (laughs) It doesn't seem like it would offer that much cushioning, but I can see where any little, every little bit would help. Wow. I wonder if anybody ever made like a, just a pom-pom suit (laughs) (laughs) for protection. Seriously. Or like on the elbows and knees and other sensitive areas <laughs> you just put just pom-poms all the way down that's what that outfit needs mm-hmm. i love that idea pom-pom suit safety first there are so many other places you can get hit than just the top of your head mm-hmm. so yeah i noted that guy's outfit also there was one panel in particular in which it stuck out cheshire's outfit when they are zooming along the I don't know, the cable to the monorail or the gondola to get to the ski village. Mm -hmm. It's a really, like, she has, like, a little personalized jet pack that she wears that hooks onto that. There was a line of toys in the 80s. I think they were called, like, Sky Commanders or Sky Riders, something like that. But they would come with this neon length of twine that you would use to make little zip lines for the action figures. And Cheshire's gear totally reminded me of those. But it's towards the end of the book when she is uh, zooming towards the ski chalet with the rest of her team. It really looks like the colorist made a save here to keep you from seeing her bare butt. I was wondering what was going on there. I was like, is she wearing boy shorts that just happen to be the same color as her uniform? Yeah, it's like she is wearing boxer briefs, but there is previously no indication that that is going on. I really think Eduardo Barreto just drew the logical extension of our costume the way you see it earlier and just shows that it is a very short miniskirt. And given that this is the angle we're going from, we would see her butt. It's much like Robin's short shorts, a wildly impractical outfit to be wearing in the snow. But I will say this about these costumed adventurers, be they good or evil, They are very committed to their looks Mm -hmm. because none of them have winterized outfits on. They are just wearing what they're usually wearing. And it's all like short sleeves and short shorts for everybody. Yep. And they do complain about it. Yeah. I wonder if there is a thing with like, well, if I put jeans on, everybody would instantly recognize me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good point about the the coloration. I, I think that is a disguise the butt maneuver. It's a butt shot. Yep. Let's take this party to the bow zone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to focus on? Let's see. I like uh, the double dipstick that we get from Hawk. <laughs> I did too. It's such a dumb insult. It really it reminded me of like elementary school school bus banter i think that was a thing that was actually said as an insult in the in the early mid 80s 
See, I can't imagine anyone actually saying that. I, I, In my mind, that is so clearly supposed to be dipshit that as I read that, I was just like, oh, Hawk watched a lot of action movies on basic cable, didn't he? <laughs> like a lot of R-rated edits for TV are going on there. I wonder if he's also going to say like, maybe my favorite one from The Lost Boys, you think you know what's going on in this town? You don't know, sly. <laughs> well, the thing is, I remember when this uh, candy, the dipstick candy came out. Do you remember that? It was like a hardened sugar stick and then a, a powdered sugar. And you would lick the stick and then put it into the powder to get it out. No, that sounds terrible. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I remember the candy existing, but... Uh, I guess I just hung with a cooler crowd because we called those dipshits. <laughs> I remember being concerned when I first saw the packaging that it was perhaps a bad word. <laughs> I didn't know what a dipstick was. Well, to be fair, neither does Hawk. Also, speaking of TV edits of R-rated movies, the situation in which Hawk calls that guy a dipstick is that he did find a stranger in the Alps. So there's that. Yeah, I liked that. I liked the double dipstick as well. He calls one of the bad guys that he catches that twice as he is threatening to kill him with a gun that he took off of him. I liked Wonder Girl's response to that, I think maybe a little bit better, where she goes, are you an idiot? I love that she made it a question. I like that she is making him complicit in his own insult. Yep, I had that also. So I feel like we kind of sense what direction we might be heading in this because we've talked it through a bit in the regular portion of the show. But who did you have as your Aqualad and who did you have as your Beast Boy? For my Aqualad, he's in the issue, but I actually went with Robin for A, being optimistic and excited at the beginning, but and then also having the courage to tell Donna that she was doing a bad job by putting him in charge after she wandered off in the middle and then kind of giving her a pep talk that got her going again. I also had the Jason Todd Robin as my Aqualad. He just did a really good job. I think a solid performance. It's difficult to stand up to somebody when they are validating you. And he did. And uh, yeah, just overall great job. As my backup, I did have Aqualad because although he is morose and being nihilistic and is still grieving the loss of Aqua Girl, I really did appreciate the recognition that it is important to keep going through the motions until you do start feeling something. I know when I've dealt with things in the past where I was like, oh, I just feel like I have no motivation to do anything. It's really easy to dwell within that. And it sucks that the thing that gets you out of that mentality is pretending that you are out of it already. And once you start going through the motions of doing things, it can jog you out of it. So uh, I think that recognition on Aqualad's part was good. And also, uh, I think it was his birthday. So he gets the backup. Sounds good. Conversely, who did you have as your Beast Boy, the worst Teen Titan? I had Hawk for just being a dang fool, for making an unsafe workplace, for his threatening whittling, and coffee <laughs> drinking. He drinks coffee in a threatening manner. <laughs> he does everything in a threatening manner. 
is not what you do with a birthday beverage. And uh, in general, just causing a lot of trouble and also contributing to, I think, the stresses that led Donna to briefly quit as captain because she had to spend so much time basically managing him. Yeah, I also had Hank just because he was such a fucknut. I couldn't not pick him. Strong contention for Donna in this category. She's the one who put this team together and asked Hank to join in the first place and is not a strong leader and puts Robin in a very awkward position. But Hank's just such a fucknut. He's he's definitely the worst. Yep. Yep. I had Hank with a Donna backup. And then, honestly, if we're just going down the line, it goes then Wally, who also did a bad job, and then Roy for withholding all that information that he has about the nature of the situation they're heading into. So, yeah, just across the board, really pretty bad jobs by everybody except for Robin and a little bit Aqualad. Yep, yep, we have an agreement. It takes a village to fuck up that badly. (laughs) This was another issue in which Eduardo Barreto and Romeo Tangal did an amazing job on the artwork. What was your favorite panel? Oh, yeah. Let's see. I had three choices. I think my top choice is... I I don't know when you're a copy what page it would come out on mine. It's 13, page 13, and it's the the full page spread where there's the memory flashback kind of in the middle of it that's done in a a green filter Mm -hmm. where it's the one that explains what the new Titans are up to, and then it's got Donna thinking kind of superimposed over the, the front of it. Yeah, that is really nicely drawn. Yep. I liked that one a lot. I also really appreciated the... The little head nod of Aqualad being, where the fuck do you get that coffee? <laughs> I liked that panel a lot. I loved the sad, angry eyeballs of Wonder Girl as she is beating the shit out of Hawk. That kind of out-of-control rage and sadness I thought was just drawn beautifully. And the zoom in on her eyeball as she is clearly furious and crying i thought was depicted really nicely yeah powerful but honestly i think my favorite is on page 11 there's just a couple of shots that just show such clear body language of three characters there is wonder girl hunched in on herself she says i guess i'm just nervous you're not happy aqualad refuses to talk what if he folds in the crunch Just showing her that hunched in on herself and looking that uncertain, it says what that character is going through way more than the words do. And then opposite that, you have the Flash being a dick and saying, he's still mourning Tula's death. He should be honoring her like I am the Flash. He should dedicate his life to making sure she isn't forgotten. And he is looking just angry and pent up. And Speedy is in the foreground thinking, and in the process, give up your own life? No, Wally, you can't live for someone else. But his face is so clearly saying, what the fuck is wrong with you, Wally? Yeah, those two panels side by side capture the gamut of emotions. Nice. Yeah. When Speedy is looking at you and thinking, what the fuck is wrong with you? That is pretty damning. 
Well, Cory, I have but one final question I must put to you. Wimjpoot. Doesn't exactly slide off the tongue there. But since we already know what Aqualad is probably up to, he's morosely celebrating his birthday, I must ask you, in the year of our Lord, 1987, as we do go by the date of the reprints, and the month of our Lord, July, what is Mr. Jupiter probably up to? Yeah, so we all know that Mr. Jupiter is a extremely accomplished businessman. The wealthiest and therefore most trustworthy man in the world. Yeah, so clearly he's, he's built an empire. But in order to do that, which, you know, ultimately is a, is a stressful endeavor, you, you need some downtime. And one of his absolutely favorite, most relaxing things to do is just hanging out in his penthouse on the top of Jupiter Tower to uh, enjoy some strong Jamaican incense, get a big bowl of ice cream, and then put on some old uh, concert tapes from his favorite jam band, The Grateful Dead. Really? And just, yeah, I know, you wouldn't think it, right? But uh, he's got his, his feet pretty firmly planted in um, the psychedelic era as he was coming up, and as we have seen uh, in the past where he's employed... Um, hallucinogenic drugs to accomplish his goals so as he was sitting there enjoying his ben and jerry's she's like jerry ben and jerry jerry garcia oh my gosh there's a synergy here a business synergy i could potentially combine two of my favorite things the awesome jam band aspect of the grateful dead and uh and this great ice cream from vermont so, fond of uh, brokering deals as he is, he actually managed to get Jerry Garcia and Ben and Jerry, the ice cream manufacturers, in a room at the beginning of the month and said, okay, guys, let's, let's come up with a co-branded deal. And uh, they had been deadlocked, pun intended, on <laughs> uh, what the new flavor would be. So he basically locked him in the, the room and uh, released some of those, uh, those same balloons that we saw earlier on filled with the hallucinogenic gases and basically let uh, Ben and Jerry and Jerry <laughs> sort things out. And took them a while, but by the end of the month, on uh, July 29th, they had come up with and uh, agreed to release their new flavor. That was Cherry Garcia. Very nice. Mm -hmm. um, well, I can see why Mr. Jupiter might need to relax with a big bowl of ice cream, because he had a pretty stressful July. He spent a lot of it trying to mitigate some maybe questionable business decisions he had made over the course of the previous year. Now, he has his fingers in a lot of pies. Through various shadow corporations, he owns a lot of different things. And two major purchases that he had made in the previous year were the Montreal Canadiens hockey franchise and Amtrak. So he had invested heavily in these things and decided he needed to protect his interests. So with the Montreal Canadiens, which he had purchased through several shadow corporations, you're not going to find it in any books, but if you know where to look, you can trace his ownership of the company. He figured their major obstacle in winning the Stanley Cup the next year was going to be the Boston Bruins and their team captain, Ray Bork. So... He talked to his government contacts, and uh, it should come as no surprise that a man that wealthy has a lot of influence in the government. And he said, 
maybe you guys should uh, hire Bork for a, a, a high-level government job. Lure him away from the Bruins. And through a series of miscommunications, that is why Ronald Reagan attempted to appoint Robert Bork to the Supreme Court. <laughs> it was just a misunderstanding. He was trying to get Raymond Bork away from the Bruins. And in July, uh, Mr. Jupiter got wind of what was going on. And he's just like, oh, for crying out, no. And so he he made sure that Congress did not allow the nomination of Robert Bork to go through. But that was just the beginning. Because as I said, he had also invested heavily in rail travel. And back in January, there had been a big, uh, horrible uh, train crash in Maryland. And so the public perception of rail travel was really in the dumps at that point. And so he found a, a, a new upcoming young pop star named Kylie Minogue, and he had her release the single for her cover of the song, <laughs> The Locomotion, to boost train awareness. And the other thing, and the, really the reason he was interested in train travel, was because he really wanted to Playing into his whole idea when he funded the Titans initially, he really wanted to have his own private police force. And the railroads actually employ the largest privatized police force in the U.S. or Canada. So he really wanted to try to promote the idea of a more privatized police force and that that could be something that he could possibly make even more money off of. And so he funded the film RoboCop. <laughs> which was released in July of 1987 about Detroit's police force being farmed out by a private corporation. Now, after watching that movie, he saw the end of it and he's like, oh, I don't want to be fired and then shot out of the top of a skyscraper. I guess maybe I shouldn't have a private police force. And he decided to divest of that investment. But that was what he was probably up to in July of 1987. Oh, my goodness. What a month. Yeah, very busy, very stressful time. But, you know, out of it, we do get the song The Locomotion, <laughs> Kylie Minogue's cover of that, and the brilliant film RoboCop. So, overall, good job, Mr. Jupiter. Wow, that is something else. And we get Cherry Garcia ice cream, which is delicious. Whether you like The Grateful Dead or just were tricked into buying one of their hats when you were a kid because you thought they were a metal band. Yeah, or one of their uh, buttons, like you would put on a, a jean jacket next to other band buttons that have nothing to do with the Grateful Dead. But it had a skeleton on it. <laughs> yeah! How are you to know? How was I to know? I mean, how would I mean, one how know? was this fictional person know? Yeah. <laughs> well... Thank you so much for joining us, Corey. This has been a real treat. And thank you for joining us, listeners. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can reach us in a couple of different ways. We can either be reached via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up in many other aspects of the interwebs where you might expect to find us on the uh, Facebook, the Twitter, Tumblr, uh, Grindr, um, Instagram, you know, all of all the places where things are. And if you can't find us there, 
hey, why not look into your heart? We're there, waving at you, saying, hey, giving you a big thumbs up. It's nice in this heart. Thanks for letting us in. We're only there because you invited us in. We're like vampires. We couldn't go there otherwise. Also, we love to drink blood. Wait, no. I don't drink blood. Nope. (laughs) No hub. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can visit our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There's a number of video reviews of classic comic books that I've been doing. I've been averaging around one of those a day for the last month or month and a half or so. So there's a lot of those that are up. There's also the monthly podcast Lisa and I host, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. And there's a bunch of other bonus material up there. So, you know, if you donate, you get access to all of that. But more importantly, it's a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the show and would like us to keep doing it. So thank you for that. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, a great way that you can do that is to leave us a review on wherever you end up listening to the show. Just uh, open up that application and uh, type in Tighten Up the Defense, and there, there's a little picture, the same one that'll show up with the podcast, and then you, you just type in nice words about us. We've gotten some really nice reviews. We got like a bunch of new ones over the last week, and I really appreciate that. Helps wipe away the taste of the the bad one that we got and it's a testament to how great you guys are that there really has just been like one or two negative reviews that we've gotten over the past five or six years Uh, and it's a testament to how thin-skinned i am that those one or two really get to me so thank you so much for that thanks everybody we'll be back next week with a defenders comic and until then Moist slabs of ham. I hadn't forgotten. Ha 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 Ugh, dipstick. Ouch! <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. You just enjoy your dipshit candy. <laughs> Goodbye! Bye! And they know it. Um, I I just realized that um, I, you know, I keep my uh, notes in a Google Docs folder and I had searched for it, but I had only typed in (laughs) T-I-T. Just browsed it. That's a whole different set of notes. (laughs) It's like, why does my Google search bar say tit? Uh, Sure, that's why. (laughs) That would actually be a berserk thing to just search for. (laughs) Just tit yep (laughs) it's short for titans i'm not greedy i just want to see one okay